Hello and welcome to another episode of Total Reboot New Releases Reviews. My name is Lexi Toliopoulos and this week Cameron James and I are going to be discussing the new film from director Matt Reeves. It is the Batman. Cam, are you excited to discuss this new big ass movie? I'm excited to talk about it with you. I'll be honest, I, I wasn't that sucked in to the marketing materials for this film. I know a lot of people were online. All those red images of Robert Pattinson and his suit and his car. I just wasn't I wasn't drawn in. But then I had a spare three hours this morning, so I thought, <laughs> you know, may as well sit down and watch this damn movie. Yeah, it what was if- this or Spartacus that you had to choose from today, <laughs> what you were going to spend your time doing. <laughs> what, did, what about you? Were you looking forward to this when you first heard the announcement? I was, because I think the pedigree of the people involved is a lot of talent that I am quite uh, invested in as a lover of films Mm -hmm. and a lover of big, big box office movies. And I was, from a very early age, I'm a Batman fan. I love the comics. I grew up reading them. I like most cinematic iterations of the character. So I think the only thing really holding me back was it perhaps was not long enough between drinks for me to be thirsty to go back down to the Batcave and slurp from the scummy puddles sitting at the bottom of the cave full of (laughs) bat guano and what have you. Um, So... I don't know if I was hungry for it quite yet, but I am now glad that it's out and I'm excited to talk about it. You weren't hungry, but you're glad you feasted. Absolutely, absolutely. So the new Batman is called The Batman. It's from director Matt Reeves. It stars Robert Pattinson as the titular The Batman character. And this is a new take on the character that we've seen so many, many iterations of. So many iterations that we've talked about on this podcast uh, over the last few years. The new take on the character follows uh, something that is quite common in the comics, but we've yet to see truly brought to the screen before, where this is a detective film starring the world's greatest detective. That is actually the Batman, okay? He's a freaking detective. And Hang in this on a film- second. What about Sherlock Holmes? Is he not the world's greatest detective? I got news for you. The guy's been dead for 300 years. We've got new blood and it's got fangs and a cape. Okay, well, what about Basil the Great Mouse Detective? Surely he's a greater detective than the Batman. Well, the life cycle of a humble mouse is only but two, three, four years back. And I believe that to be set in the 1910s. (laughs) He's been dead for a mighty long time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. I, I will say that element of this new one was the one thing I was looking forward to the most because mm-hmm. Batman has always been called the world's greatest detective, yet on screen we pretty much only see him flying around and kicking bad guys' asses in action scenes. We never really see him do the grunt work. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to finally have a take on the character that is I dare not say exactly, but it is in the realm of neo-noir cinema. It's a detective procedural that follows Batman as he investigates a series of slayings of political figures at the hands of the most cunning wordsmith of them all, Paul Dano's The Riddler. <laughs> Along the way, he comes up against criminal figures from the underworld, played by John Torturo, mm-hmm. and The Penguin, with a fantastic performance from Colin Farrell. And, of course, he comes up against one of his greatest friends and foes, Catwoman, played by Zoe Kravitz. 
Yeah, I mean, the cast is fantastic, and that was always something to look forward to. I just want to say to our listeners, before we fully dive in here, that we're going to try and keep this, you know, spoiler's not a word that really you or I are comfortable even saying, because that's- It's not in our lexicon. It's not in our lexicon. It's kind of, you know, it's very internet-heavy word. We will say we will not give too much away about this film. But we will talk about how we felt about it and the way that the way that it moved us or didn't move us over the three hour runtime, which I have mentioned twice now, mm-hmm. um, and I've bit my tongue each time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cam, I think it's uh, at the risk of us becoming a three hour podcast. I say that we dive into Matt Reeves's The Batman. Let's do it. What's black and blue? Prisoners to match. Oh, take it easy, sweetheart. I've been trying to reach you. What are you doing? This continues. It won't be long before you've nothing left. I don't care what happens to me. You're not so different. Who are you under there? So, Cam, you are fresh out of the cinema on this one. Yes, the popcorn is still all over my lap. (laughs) The butter is on my fingers and there is melted chock top running down my arms as we speak. Yeah, you're a sticky little sucker. (laughs) How did Matt Reeves' take on the Batman stick with you? Can I tell you how I felt when I saw the first trailer? For this yeah, film of course. First. Take me back to those halcyon days. Mm, of late 2021, <laughs> around mm-hmm. about December. I remember feeling that I was out of step with the internet's response to this trailer. People were very excited by the first little teaser that came out. And a lot of the words and buzz phrases that got thrown around were, this looks like... Seven or Zodiac, but set in the world of Batman. Mm-hmm. And that's... I'll tell you something. Batman, in and of itself, very exciting character, very exciting premise for a world. Zodiac and Seven, two films that I admire greatly. One of them, I would say, is in my top five. But do I need to see the merging of those two things? I don't know if I ever did. And when people kept saying look, this looks like David Fincher doing a Batman movie. I kept saying, yeah, but it's directed by some freaking guy called Matt Reeves. It's not, it's not David Fincher. If it was David Fincher, maybe I'd be a little more excited. But then I had a look at the filmography of this guy and I thought, well, look, if the director of The Paul Bearer starring David Schwimmer wants to take on Batman, mm-hmm. then it can't be all bad. Yeah, we're all friends here, man. We can go. <laughs> We can go. <laughs> but I will say, like, I like Cloverfield. I think Cloverfield's pretty cool. I like, um, what's the, which Apes movie did he do? He did the last two. He did the last two. He did War and he did Dawn, I believe. Dawn of or Rise. The Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes. He did not do Rise. Okay. But I think what you're kind of getting at is something that I like about Matt Reeves a lot. I love his take on Planet of the Apes. You're an ape guy. I'm a huge ape guy. I'm such a big ape guy. I'm a freaking gorilla. 
You're a silverback over there. <laughs> I'm a freaking silverback over here. I love that he is... And what kind of excited me about him coming to the Batman world is he, in my opinion, is the great modern journeyman filmmaker. And a lot of people are talking about like an auteurist touch coming back to Batman and stuff. But I think Batman has been in the hands of auteurs forever up until right now. Um, and I am welcome to a great journeyman filmmaker who works in the realm of adaptations and the ideas of for the new generation. Basically, everything that he's done is an adaptation of something. Cloverfield being a new take on a kaiju Kaiju Godzilla type movie. Mm. Uh, Let Me In being a remake of the Swedish horror vampire movie, Mm -hmm. Let the Right One In. His apes movies being kind of biblical takes on the Planet of the Apes mythos set in a modern world that I think are really, 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 really fantastic. I think uh, Wolf of the Planet of the Apes is the best freaking Mm. adaptation of the Bible and the Moses story we've ever had on the big screen. Oh, my and God. That's a I, huge call. <laughs> well, what else is there? I'm going to freaking say the Prince of Egypt? No uh, way, dude. Passion of the Christ much? Okay, that's the Jesus story, okay? I'm mm. talking freaking Mosey, dude. We're talking big old Moses, Sorry. the big old beard, the big old tablets. I only believe in the new book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I've been... I've actually been hankering for the idea of a very, very skilled journeyman filmmaker coming into the world of Batman and being kind of being in the same kind of ballpark of trying to bring the comics to the screen. Rather than just going, this is a whole new take on the character, seeing some kind of a faithful translation in some way. And I think for the most part, that is what Matt Reeves delivers. Yeah, I mean, he definitely comes across as a fan, which is a good thing. And I think he's a very skilled visual director. I wasn't very excited by the idea of him, but i got to say, having just left the cinema, I was pretty impressed the whole way through. And for a runtime that, you know, uh, intimidating, it didn't feel slow to me. It felt like it moved. It felt like it had, it kind of, I don't want to say it earned its runtime, but it came it came as close as you can, in my opinion. I think he has a remarkably distinct take on Gotham, which I think when we've seen so many different versions of this city, so many different versions of the characters that populate it, uh, it can be hard to bring something new mm. to the screen and to even once again recreate uh, an exciting world that we do want to inhabit. Uh, And I think that the kind of mix of mood board that he kind of builds with this, I think because it's still like the first steps into this world uh, or first new, I think because it's still the first steps into this new world of Gotham, this new world of Batman, there is a lot of this that while not directly an origin film of Batman, it does feel like the first steps into this new take on the character where we're seeing like the first... Uh, touches of the essence of Batman that he will become or the essence of Bruce Wayne that he will portray to that side of the world. So it does feel like it is the setup, yet it feels like an individual story in that world. I think that part is quite successful. I don't know if I can agree with you where I think it feels like it earns its runtime. I Please let the record show that I did not say it earns its runtime. I, you you said you could get close. I to said it comes it, it, it comes close <laughs> to earning its runtime. I don't think it fully does. 
Yeah, I think that is my main drawback on this film. There's a lot, a lot, a lot to love here. But I think it has some issues with pacing towards the end. And when we're in that kind of like that fourth act of this film, I definitely felt almost like boredom was kind of taking over me. Like it almost overstayed its welcome, I'd say. Interesting. And I think some of it kind of begins to take form in, like, problems that I have with superhero films now, where this film feels like it is telling an individual story in this world, an individual take on Batman that has some kind of lower stakes, which I found terribly exciting. But when the stakes start to ratchet up even higher to be not just about, like, the corruption within, like, the bureaucracy of the police and the politicians of Gotham uh, that take blight over the city, where it starts to be like physical problems in Gotham mm. where there's a, almost feels like it turn, takes a turn to disaster movie. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I felt like mm. the stakes were getting too big and I started to lose the personal stakes in the film. And then we've got issues that I have where it is the idea of the connectivity to a larger narrative world that yeah. is being built up here rather than I feel like the individual film begins to get lost at a certain point. Um, but- there is a lot to love here. There is a lot to get excited about. Yeah, see, I I don't know. I, I think I found the, the ratcheting up of tension and stakes relatively exciting, if only just because the popcorn blockbuster fan in me enjoyed mm. watching the visuals of it all, if you know what I mean. Like yes. there was, I'd seen two hours of A Small World and it was exciting to see what this director does with destruction and you know mass scale sort of things so i i enjoyed watching it from that perspective i will say i don't know if i ever bought into the emotional stakes of this movie i don't think i ever truly got to know bruce wayne and uh other than the fact that i'm projecting onto him everything i already know from the 17 other movies i've seen with Bruce Wayne in it. I kind of feel almost at this point like if I was a big fan of the Western, and I am, but if I was a big fan of the Western in 1972 and someone said, hey, do you know there's a new John Wayne movie coming out? I'd be like, cool, I bet I know exactly what it is. I feel like I have seen every iteration of what he can do and of what his characters are. And to be honest, I feel... I feel a bit like that with Bruce Wayne. I kind of know the tragedy. I know the doom and gloom. I know the building yourself up into being a symbol. I'm not getting any new notes with this character. The closest I'm getting is what Matt Reeves can bring to it, which is a visual look. And so I just pinned everything, all my enjoyment on that. I think you've got an interesting point with like Rob Pattinson's take on Bruce Wayne and his take on the Batman as well in that it's kind of hard to judge it almost because it feels like it is an incomplete arc so far, knowing this will end up being a trilogy. Um, Which is very depressing plus. to me, by the way. Like, why, why does every arc need to last three films now? Why can't we just get mm. a single story arc? 
I think that's something that I really appreciate when I go back to Tim Burton's take on the character and Michael Keaton's take on the character where we have an arc in the first film. The mm. second film is just like, yeah, Batman and Bruce Wayne are just one guy. Ba- Bruce Wayne barely exists. Mm. And I think with this film, it's hard to just go... It almost has something like that where it feels like Bruce Wayne doesn't exist. He's only mm. Batman. But I feel like there's something exciting in where this character will go that I've not felt with other iterations of the character more recently, where I feel like perhaps in the next movie we'll get to know who Bruce Wayne is or how Bruce Wayne will present himself back out to Gotham now that he's kind of out of hiding or out bringing himself back to the spotlight and having like a humanitarian role or perhaps that playboy guise that he puts on uh, to connect with the people of Gotham as Bruce Wayne to give his cover some kind of legitimacy. So I'm interested to see where that character goes, but it's hard to even discuss it in this movie because it's just like a dark, violent take on the character. But that's how I've described every version of Batman <laughs> yeah. this side of Joel Schumacher. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's like I also am excited to see Robert Pattinson act more. I don't know if I'm excited to see what Bruce Wayne does next because I know what happens to Bruce Wayne next because I've seen it, you mm. know. So, yeah, I'll give me more of them. I'll watch Robert Pattinson do this forever, but I'm not going to be... I'm not going to be buying in on an emotional level at any point because it's almost like... We've seen we we've seen every possible iteration of what this story can be, right? Yeah, I think so. And for me, one of the things that this movie does quite successfully compared to uh, the Zack Snyder versions of Batman and the world of the Justice League and the greatest heroes on Earth's surface and perhaps even beneath near the melted core of the Earth, but um, what. I found satisfying and what I think a film of this runtime really does need is for me the idea of some kind of tonal diversity like I think the Lord of the Rings films are very successful at having different textures and tones throughout where there is darkness there is kind of the brooding tone there is an emotional core yet there can be like weird silly goofy little characters and there's full songs full songs and stuff (laughs) (laughs) i wish we had a little bit of more singing we get a couple of dean martin notes here and there but um i think the characterizations work really well in this film in giving just the idea of tonal diversity and there are some quite interesting moments of humor that work for me uh but chief among them the most delightful vein of gold throughout this entire big old boulder of a movie is, for me, Colin Farrell's <laughs> take on Oz, Oswald Cobblepot, the Penguin. I feel like he's tapping into like the some great gangster performances <laughs> like Robert De Niro in The Untouchables. Yeah, dude, that's exactly why you like him. He looks exactly like De Niro as Al Capone. He looks like freaking Bob Hoskins. He feels like Sidney Greenstreet in like The Maltese Falcon or uh, Casablanca. But I think that it is such like a welcome new tone to like what is otherwise like a dark and brooding police procedural movie to just have Colin Farrell really honing into like something quite spectacular. I, I, I loved his performance. What did you think of it, Cam? I'm a big Farrell guy. I've been a big fan since he had a sex tape all those years ago where he was banging someone in a hotel room. 
I think he's awesome. And I think in the last like 10 years, we've seen him do these really like sometimes cartoonish, sometimes very restrained, but always interesting character performances. Mm, he's um, very versatile. He's incredibly versatile. And I I love him in this. I was really worried seeing the marketing materials and seeing the level of prosthetics that they've used. But fuck you. Like This is probably the only time in cinema that I have lost the actor. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. He completely... I, I don't see Colin Farrell. I don't even freaking hear Colin Farrell. No, I don't hear him. The, I, a few times during the movie, I was staring at his face like I was searching for a fucking clue, like to go, okay, where is he? I know he's mm. here, but where? And every now and then you see it in his eyeballs. That's all yeah. you get, his fucking eyeballs peering out at you. It's a really great performance. It's funny, incredibly charismatic. The prosthetic work is amazing. And, um, I mean, I hear they're doing more with this character. So I I kind of want to see more of this more than I want to see Batman. Yeah, I think that there was talk of a Gotham PD show that was going to star Jeffrey Wright, who I also think Mm. is such a great uh, Detective Gordon. I I hope to see more of him as well. But I think there's like a Gotham PD show happening on HBO that I think may have even morphed to be a bit more of a Colin Farrell Penguin show. Oh, that's cool. Well, look, I I tell you one thing I really enjoyed about it. You tapped into it by saying that Farrell is kind of channeling these great gangster performances. That's an element of the Batman-like saga that I feel has been missing since the Tim Burton movies. There's always been, in the comics and in in the Tim Burton films, there's been this sort of like Al Capone, larger-than-life, like gun-running really classic 1940s gangster element to Gotham City that we've never really seen. And I loved that we got hints of it in this movie. Yes. I think it really really felt like I was watching, at times, even though it's an incredibly grounded film, the the heightened cartooniness of, like, the, the club that houses all the mafia people and the club within the club, I, like, really bought into all that shit. I thought that was really cool. I think that's a welcome addition too because I definitely love what Christopher Nolan did in the gangster realm with like Tom Wilkinson as Falcone and Maroney played by one of my favourite character actors, Eric Roberts. Mm. But that felt like very grounded in modern gangster films or Michael Mann cinema. And I think there's something really in tapping into kind of like the noir element of gangster films. Mm. And I don't think this is a noir movie. I think it's overstating to say that this is even a neo-noir movie, but it still plays in the same realm for a lot of it. The cinematography from a wonderful Australian cinematographer, Greg Fraser, who has worked with Nash Edgerton and David Michaud on their short films. He shot Bright Star for Jane Campion, and I absolutely love his, like, incredible cinematography in the Dev Patel starring film Lion. Um, I think what he does in collaboration with Matt Reeves to bring Gotham to life in a darkness and noir darkness that is different from the way Tim Burton brought it with elements of German expressionism to bring those elements all together to then kind of bring it into with a griminess Mm. uh, as like the new mode that it's coming through. 
and dare I say it, elements of grimy horror. And I think there's those moments of like playing in the shadows and playing in the darkness that we are introduced to this world where we do feel like Batman is lurking in shadows. We feel yeah. the intimidation and the horror that Batman can create in the minds and uh, in the souls of the villains <laughs> of Gotham. I thought that was so successful. And even more successful than that was the introduction of the Batmobile feeling like Christine coming to life, mm. like roaring to life like a vintage muscle car. Uh, with eyes glowing in the darkness, ready to rip Penguin apart. Yeah, it's like a weapon for the first time ever. Even though the in the Schumacher Batman films, like literally make the Batmobile a weapon, where it has mm. like grappling hooks and yeah. all these little gadgets on it. This is just a car, but it's the first time it's actually felt threatening and scary. Though I think in cinema. Hey, just quickly on Greg Fraser, I want to I want to say a couple of things before I forget though. Do you think he ripped off his own work um, in one of the sequences? You know, it's in the ad, so I'm not spoiling it, but there's a sequence where Batman is fighting some goons in a hallway and it's almost like strobe lighting, but it's strobe lit by their gunshots and he's as he's moving through and taking them all out one by one. Did that feel exactly like the Darth Vader Rogue One hallway scene to you? Yeah, I think that's a good call. I think it. this film does have interesting lighting where it's like often lit quite practically by mm. gunshots and stuff. I mean, well, I guess they bring in the expert for a reason, right? It's like they went, uh, well, let's use this sequence in the sizzle reel. And mm-hmm. while we're at it, we'll also get Greg Fraser to kind of light this exactly the same way. But you mentioned something else that he did earlier, uh, which is like bringing the horror of darkness to screen, and I just want to say the the opening sequence of this film, I think very, very great buy into the movie, which mm-hmm. is you meet the world of Gotham through the petty criminals who yeah. are doing like bullshit around town, like spray painting or robbing a grocery mm-hmm. store or mugging someone on a train. And then you see the bat sign up in the sky. And then the rest of the sequence is colored by the fear of these petty criminals who are looking at every shadow with suspicion. Like, is he there? Is he following? Is he watching me? I thought that was some of the best use of what Batman is supposed to be in in the cinema in a long time. Mm. Like, to go, oh, okay, this is a character who literally is designed to be a weapon of fear and to scare the shit out of like local dipshits and like yes. just, just like petty little assholes and i just found it very very cool and it was the first time i've ever realized that we are supposed to be scared of batman i thought it was very well done there's also this element of like the lurking point of view of both batman and the riddler that we're kind of seeing the world through mm. that i think creates a very creepy voyeuristic atmosphere uh, that I think plays so well into the detective noir story that they're attempting to create here. One other sequence that we kind of started talking about a little bit with the car is what I admire most about this movie is this car chase sequence that we have that I think is genuinely something I've not seen talked about enough in discussions on this film that I really think it might be one of the most 
mm, what's the word I'm trying to say? Cool. <laughs> One of the most kind of newly inventive car chase sequences I've seen in a blockbuster film in quite some time, where it kind of evokes feelings of this James Gray movie that I really like called We Own the Night with Joaquin Phoenix, where we are trapped inside one car in one perspective for this whole car chase sequence in a very unconventional, strange way that kind of makes a car chase feel quite claustrophobic. I think it borrows elements of that where we've got the entire car chase almost mostly from the type of the mostly from the point of view of the penguin and what it brings new to a car chase is i don't think i've ever seen a car chase in a movie like this where traffic feels like a trapped in mm, element yeah. of danger like this yeah. and to have the biggest stunt in the movie which is the freaking muscle car that is the Batmobile ripping through a semi-trailer as it explodes over a ramp flying into it to basically be delivered via a rear view mirror Mm. is something that I think is such a ballsy move for a big blockbuster movie to find a new angle and for the new angle to be claustrophobic, small and not traditionally visually compelling, I thought was in turn, extremely visually compelling. Yeah, I love that whole sequence. You're so right about the traffic. It's kind of the first time the traffic even feels real in a car mm. chase. You know, I rewatched Bullet recently, and um, yeah. I mean, obviously that's famous for its 11-minute car chase. But the thing that I love about the Bullet chase is that they stop at red lights all the time, mm. and cars cut in front of them, and they have to slow down. And they slow down when they turn corners and stuff. This feels comparable because they're Mm -hmm. driving in heavy traffic and every now and then they have to go slow and weave (laughs) intricately around people. (laughs) I found it incredibly cool. And it also served as a reminder to me how amazing um, like the shooting locations were for this film. I mean, I think they largely shot in Glasgow Mm. and London and that's exactly what the traffic is like there. It's like bumper to bumper and it's pouring rain. And if you're driving in the dark in the rain on a freeway in Glasgow, you can't see jack shit around you. And that's what it felt like in these in these car chases. I loved it. Yeah. Shit, man, it rocked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we start wrapping things up, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the other highlighted performances here. I think Zoe Kravitz is a really compelling Catwoman mm-hmm. and an interesting Selena Kyle. I like that there is basically, like Batman, there's no differ- difference between those two characters. Mm-hmm. They are one and the same. And I really, really love John Torturo as well. Yeah, I yeah. am such a fan of John Torturo, and usually I'm so used to his neuroses being mm. something that's on display or some kind of low-status character. Mm. To see him kind of be the big fish of this disgusting little puddle and to be quite cold and using... John Torturo's natural warmth to create something different, to create kind of like this intimidating bond with the Zoe Kravitz character and the Robert Pattinson character. I found like oddly eerily 
seductive for a yeah. John Tortura role. I-, I think that he might be like my secret sleeper highlight of the whole film. Yeah, MVP from me. I think he's... You're so right. We're so used to seeing him basically as um, Barton Fink, you know, mm-hmm. or- um, Or the Jesus from yeah, The Big Lebowski. Exactly. But to see him used in this way, it was a brilliant casting move because the guy's a very talented actor and he can do anything, but he rarely gets to. And to flex this specific muscle where he gets to be the heavy, I mean, it's the role that every actor wants- and to see him do it was so exciting and, and fresh for me. I also realise we haven't talked about Paul Dano. It's an interesting performance. I think that he captures something very interesting and chilling. And I got to say, I freaking had a giggle when he was like, does a shout out to his followers in like his final video <laughs> yeah, as yeah. the Riddler. Um I love Paul Dano, and I think that he's a great fit for this role. He kind of communicates much of the creepiness that we see in, like, you know, John Carroll Lynch as Mm. potentially the Zodiac Killer in the Zodiac film. Yeah, yeah. Um, What did you think about him? I like Paul Dano a lot, but he is one of those actors that quite often... I never lose him in the character. As an audience member, I often feel like I'm watching somebody acting. Um, A great example for me would be There Will Be Blood, where he, I never truly buy him as Eli. I I often just kind of think, okay, he's a guy who's enjoying getting to act opposite Daniel Day-Lewis and give these big, crazy monologues. This is comparable. It's it's quite a similar type of role, and I think he's really compelling. He's really fun to watch, but I'm never inside his skin. And another problem, perhaps, with this character is that they've done everything aesthetically to differentiate him from previous incarnations. Um, he actually you wanted him to have a big old cane with the question <laughs> mark at the tip. Well, he looks really cool this time, really scary, and his videos are very scary and manic. But in doing so, they've just made him a little closer to Heath Ledger's Joker, and that's that's big. That's a big shadow to kind of stand in. You know what I mean? Mm. And and maybe it's not different enough to the Joker. I mean, he's a giggling guy who enjoys little pranks and who makes viral videos and is trying to take down a city with an army of followers. It's on paper. It's basically the Joker. I do wish that we got a bit more of a manifesto from the character. Like Mm. we kind of know that he is, there is motivation as to why he's trying to bring down the corruption of Gotham. But, yeah, there just are points where I wish that we got things to go a little bit deeper in that direction. But mm. I mean, it's a superhero blockbuster movie. It is going to be broad strokes. Yeah. Also, they think- didn't have time. It's only a three-hour movie. Where are they going to fit that in? You know. Yeah, we got to have time to introduce characters that might appear <laughs> further down the line in other movies. We got to <laughs> slow things down. We got to hang out with freaking Andy Circus for a little bit here <laughs> and there. Oh, hey, no complaints here. I think Andy Circus is a pretty pretty incredible actor. And I'm always going to welcome him back in a Matt Reeves movie. I think he's given one of the greatest performances in my freaking lifetime as Caesar, the beautiful monkey man in the <laughs> Planet of the Apes films. Um, 
one thing that I really want to highlight deeply, darkly, in particular, is Michael Giacchino's score to this film. Yeah, dude. I think scores are something... I think memorable scores have been something that have deeply, deeply been lacking in this genre of filmmaking for... Uh, I think since Hans Zimmer's scores on the Man of Steel film and even like the Dark Knight trilogy, I think that there's been a huge gaping lack of interesting music work in this genre. I think that this is... I was always even worried seeing Giacchino's name be attached to this movie early on. I like a lot of his work, but I like most of it when it's kind of bright and jazzy. But here... He does something so powerful in his use of percussion and timpani being the melodious notes for the score of, for the theme of the Batman. Like the character of Batman being based in like creating melodies with like the beating of a timpani. I found that to be so emotionally effective in creating all the tension I needed from that character. And, like, effectively, yeah, it does sound a little bit like the Imperial March being slowed down, but I think it invents something really interesting by having that be worked through in percussive beats. I found it really... I it, Very rarely would I ever talk about a score in a big movie like this having any kind of effect on me. Here, I'm talking about, like, weird emotions that it was making Mm. me feel. The discomfort it conjured. Well, you're so right in that the last 10 years, we haven't really had a great superhero theme in a score. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I I came up in the age of Danny Elfman scoring Mm. movies and... um, and who's the, you know, Spielberg's guy? Who's the big guy? John Williams. John Williams, right. Superman so score. These are guys that do scores and they do themes and the character gets a fucking theme. And it's been so long since we've had that. This film, I mean, he's given the Batman a two-note theme. Mm. That's like Jaws. Yes. That's instantly iconic mm-hmm. to me that we get literally two notes and it's played over and over again in this repetitious, foreboding, scary way that can become uplifting with the use of strings. I was hooked on the fucking music to this thing. I thought it was so cool to make him an icon again by giving him just a two-note score, like the shark underwater, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And I will say there's a couple of parts through this film that I feel like, unintentional or not, are a callback to Batman Returns. There's mm-hmm. some really interesting use of like, you know, that raked violin sound mm-hmm. where it kind of go, it starts high and makes its way down. They reminded me so much of Danny Elfman's work in Batman Returns when we're introducing um, the world to, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer as Selena Kyle. I felt like it was a nice little throwback orally that put me in the headspace of this slinky, freaky, sexy, badass character. I really... I mean, I can't sing the praises of this music enough. I think it's it's probably why I think it almost earns its three-hour runtime. I think far and away, the score is the greatest 
element of this film. I think that it carries it a lot of the time, but in a way where I would not, I don't want to denigrate the film either. I don't think the film is being carried by the score. I think that the visual elements of this movie and the acting and the characterization and even like the tension hold their own with the score. I think when it comes down to it, my main points with this film where I do feel like my, where I'm not, I, I think I, there's a lot to love in this movie, and I think I did like it a lot, yet I'm not exactly enthusiastic about this film beyond the score, really. And I don't know if I will be, in any time soon, revisiting this film. Mm. I look forward to revisiting Matt Reeves's Batman, the characters of Gotham, and, heck, the <clears> most <throat> exciting character of all of this series- the character of Gotham itself. Mm. I am looking forward to the next iteration, seeing where the characters go, seeing, uh, just even seeing how other characters from the comic books that we've either seen before in cinematic versions or have never seen brought to the screen before, how they will be translated to cinema in this world under the direction of Matt Reeves. I'm excited for all that, yet I think I just, where I land is just, I think it's good, but I'm not enthusiastic. I'm not even really verging on great. No, no. I mean, I feel very similar to you. I enjoyed my experience with it. I stand by what I said about the Western earlier. I feel like we're currently approaching two decades of, um, you know, superhero films being the dominant force in cinema, and that's a long time. And even though we've seen evolutions of it, we're still kind of seeing the same story again and again. It is getting a bit draining. And maybe it's just taking a lot more for me to get excited about than it used to. Um, having said all that, it's a very fun film. It made me want to go to Glasgow again. And uh, it also made me want to watch Seven and Zodiac again. <laughs> Maybe want to watch Batman Returns very, very badly. <laughs> Seeing the freaking, the cat, the bat, and the freaking bird all together at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited to see what Matt Reeves does. I think he's a great choice for this. I think that having a highly skilled journeyman filmmaker tackle this kind of story, these kind of adaptations is the right choice. I think it's welcome to the genre. I think it is verging on a breath of mildly fresh air for the <laughs> genre without it being kind of a revisionist superhero movie in any kind of way. I think where I land on it, Cam, is I think I'm going to give the Batman three and a half stars. I'm going to give it three. And uh, that's not bad. That's fine. It's good. It's good. It's good. Go watch it in the cinema or, you know, don't and wait till streaming. It's up to you. Absolutely, it's up <laughs> it's to you. totally up to you. We are just here to inform you on our opinions of a movie. They do not have to factor in forming your own opinions. Yeah. You know, you are a beautiful individual listening to this podcast uh -huh. with your yeah. own world, your own yeah. hopes and dreams, your own visions of who the Dark Knight could be, of course. Your own taste, your own style. But I will say, you know, if you do decide not to see it in cinema at least go to a local cinema and buy a choc top or something. Yeah, of course. Get a bag of popcorn and recreate the greatest movie in date history at home on the couch. <laughs> yeah.
Well, next week on the podcast, we're going to be going back into the Millennium Mindfuck miniseries with a fantastic discussion on Cameron Crowe, Cameron Diaz, and Tom Cruise, Thomas Cruise, Mapitha the Fourth, I should say, mm-hmm. Vanilla Sky. In the meantime, Cam, you are about to kick off a little tour down south in Melbourne. Yeah, I'm actually going all around the country. So on if this if you're listening to this as it comes out on the Friday, guess what? Tomorrow I'm in the Gold Coast doing my solo show there. So if you live in and around the Gold Coast, and I pray that you do, because it's a great part of the world, um, come check out my show. The links uh, will be on my Instagram. And if you're in the rest of the country, don't worry, I'm coming to you as well. I'm coming to Melbourne. I'm coming to Perth, I'm coming to Sydney, I'm coming to Newcastle, and all of that information is on my Instagram in my little bio. So have fun clicking on that, and hopefully I'll see you at the shows. I've got a brand new podcast called Lived It With Me and Jen Fricker, and we've got a great episode this week where we find people that have similar life stories to the plots of TV shows and movies coming out on Netflix. And this week, we've got such an awesome chat with someone who grew up in the 1960s under the Cold War, whose parents were spies for ASIO, the spy Mm. force here in Australia. Uh, She was a child spy. It's really cool. It is such a great, funny, weird chat about spycraft during Brisbane in the 1960s and 70s. So it's a cool one to check out. That is so cool. That's so cool. Uh, In the meantime... Uh, subscribe to the Patreon at patreon.com slash totalreboot for more podcasts from us. And and next week, we've got a pretty big and exciting announcement coming. So keep your ears peeled for next week's episode where we'll reveal something pretty freaking 